This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, can the news media make or break leaders in these turbulent times? A new analysis finds media coverage is more important than ever after COVID in shaping our perception of leaders' success, trustworthiness and transparency, or a perceived lack of those. But as we hear so often these days, trust in the media themselves is falling fast, so... How does that work? And we also hear how reporters are still unhappy about government by press conference during the COVID crisis. There's certainly still a high level of frustration. One of the journalists that we talked to labelled this government as the most anti-media government they could remember. Now one who knows all about the media focus on leaders is the National Party leader Judith Collins. This week there were confident claims in the media that the end was nigh for her leadership, even though reporters and pundits were at the same time saying the job wasn't actually up for grabs anytime soon anyway. But first, a story that swung the spotlight back onto the culture in our media companies. Kia ora, good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Coming up today, Victoria Arbiter on what the Royals do now after the explosive revelations about the Panorama interview. That was News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen kicking off her drive show on Friday with her take on the revelations from the UK that Diana Spencer had been duped by former BBC journalist Martin Bashir before agreeing to that now notorious TV interview 25 years ago and that the BBC had hidden the truth ever since. Well, I guess some of us are going to have to reassess our opinion of Princess Diana and that Panorama interview, aren't we? Um, Those admissions from the BBC today are, wow, shocking, explosive. You pick the way you want to describe it. Now, to bring you up to speed on this, what has happened is that the BBC... That Panorama interview is now part of media history, and the latest development was almost a day old by the time Heather Duplessis-Ellen zeroed in on it on her show on Friday afternoon. But still, it was quite a story and quite a talking point for talk radio. 9292 is the text number. The email is heather at newstalkzb.co.nz. Tell you what, I'd love to know if it's changed your opinion of Diana, actually. Uh, Let me know. And three hours earlier, the hosts of the preceding ZB show, Phil Gifford and Simon Barnett, were also appalled by the BBC cover-up. People at the BBC, if it can be proved, they deliberately covered up the deceit. Should they be in in the UK? News of the World, run by Rupert Murdoch. When there was that phone hacking scandal, I think one of the Raws was subject to that, along with Hugh Grant and a number of other celebrities. The News of the World ultimately was shut down. They closed down the newspaper. We're not suggesting they closed down the BBC over this. But what do you think should happen? Is it enough just to make an apology? Should there be more punishment than that? But at about that time, another story was breaking, which also raised the question of appropriate punishment. This also involved a controversial and well-known broadcaster whose misconduct had come to light elsewhere in the media. And in spite of persistent questioning from other media, the broadcaster responsible for this hadn't acknowledged it yet either. And this story wasn't 25 years old and half a world away. It was in their own newsroom. Around lunchtime on Friday, stuff broke the news that ZB's star sportscaster Martin Devlin had been taken off the air after aiming a blow, inaccurately, at a junior colleague during a show he was hosting 10 days earlier. That meant he didn't do his regular show, Devlin on Sport, last weekend, though his absence wasn't explained to the listeners then. And even though Stuff's story made a point of saying that this altercation happened in a large open-plan office shared by News Talk ZB and the New Zealand Herald, the Herald only reported this on Friday after Stuff had spilled the beans first. And according to Stuff's account, that was only after a full week of asking NZME, the owner of News Talk ZB and the Herald, and getting no response. But even after the scoop was up on the site of ZB's sister paper, The Herald, the news was strangely absent from ZB's own news bulletins and talk shows on Friday afternoon. 
Phil Gifford and Simon Bannett usually kick off their ZB afternoon show with a live update on current stories with ZB's news director. On Friday, that began like this. Um, we're just waiting upon Scarlett Switanovich, who's just been held up in a very important meeting, so she's going to join us in just a couple of gifs. That probably wasn't the only meeting going on at ZB that afternoon. But while the stuff story about Martin Devlin was quickly becoming its most viewed story, and the Wikipedia page on Martin Devlin had already been updated to include the news of his misconduct, Scarlett Svetanovich spoke instead about the resignation of the Ports of Auckland boss. Senior leader has been lost because of political and union bullying. He says with today being Pink Shirt Day for anti-bullying, he'll be wearing his for Tony Gibson. And the irony of it being Pink Shirt Day, part of a national campaign against bullying, wasn't lost on some of those who knew that news about aggression in their own premises was going unacknowledged. But this wasn't the only concerning conduct about Martin Devlin which was being aired by other media. In a statement from Martin Devlin that was issued shortly after Stuff's story went live, the broadcaster also admitted to sending what he called inappropriate messages to other colleagues. The behaviour was wholly unacceptable, said Martin Devlin, though he wasn't specific about why, and neither were his employers at NZME, who would only say the company doesn't comment on employment matters, though it did insist a healthy, safe and inclusive workplace must remain our ultimate duty of care. But soon after, there was much more about this, published on the New Zealand Herald website from NZME reporter Katie Harris, who reports from Wellington. She had previously spoken to women who said they'd received unwelcome messages and invitations from Martin Devlin, which in his statement he had described himself as innocent. Katie Harris described the emails in question, including one sent in 2018 to a young colleague inviting her for a drink. The woman said she was upset by the approach and complained about it to her manager. Another woman at NZME told Katie Harris she received emails from Devlin last year which made her feel uncomfortable, but they stopped after she raised the matter with a colleague. In one of these emails, Martin Devlin joked about a high-profile investigation into sexual harassment at law firm Russell McVeigh. Now, this was in the headlines at the time, and it became a landmark of the New Zealand Me Too movement, and this threw up another irony. The former Russell McVeigh partner whose conduct sparked all this appeared before a disciplinary tribunal in Wellington this week, and it was Katie Harris who reported on this for NZME and Newstalk ZB. All the while, the notes on Martin Devlin's conduct would have been burning a hole in Katie Harris's notebook. Now, reporting on your own media company is never easy, and on Twitter, Katie Harris made a point of acknowledging the courage and integrity of her boss as well as her sources. Now, when working out what to do about Martin Devlin, News Talk ZB's management would have been well aware that the public wouldn't have forgotten about his predecessor as the star sportscaster at ZB. In 2009, Tony Veach was convicted of serious assault on his partner three years earlier, and she suffered serious injuries which forced her to quit her job. The investigation revealed several other assaults too and there was an outcry when there was a coordinated campaign of support for Tony Veach from his colleagues at the broadcaster, including Paul Holmes and Martin Devlin. And Tony Veach returned to News Talk ZB two and a half years later. When Tony Veach eventually quit to run a wellness retreat in Bali in 2017, it was Martin Devlin who took over the weekend show. Now it seems Martin Devlin's ZB career has also survived the outcry over his conduct revealed this week. The statement released by Martin Devlin himself on Friday made it clear that allowing him back on air had been discussed and agreed with NZME management after that altercation in the studio on the 10th of May, but before it was reported in the media. And the decision was made in the knowledge that he had sent female colleagues unwanted, unwelcome messages. 
I have been given a second chance and I'm able to keep my job, Devlin's statement said, but with caveats around his return to work, he added, though he didn't specify what those were. Half an hour before the Devlin on Sports show on Saturday then, Martin Devlin didn't sound like a man weighed down by remorse. Here he is, Martin Devlin uh, will be taking over this afternoon, the DRS kicking off on Newstalk ZB right after the midday news and uh, counting down to that four o'clock kickoff in the cake tin. How many fans are they expecting Over 20, for the Phoenix? Over 20,000, Jack. Phoenix back in town for the first time since March last year. It's so good. And football coming home was front of mind when his show started at midday. Nick's are back in town, Nick's are back in town. Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've waited for. The winners, the losers, the Devlin Radio Show with Martin Devlin. Afternoon, welcome. The DRS. This is a sports show. Three hours dedicated to the celebration of sport. My name is Martin Devlin. But after a bit of preamble, he did address the elephant in the studio like this. I let myself, I let my family, I let my friends, I let my employers, and I let... All of you who listen to this program down, and it's not the first time, I've had to make some serious and troublesome admissions to myself about the uh, the continued conflict that I battle upstairs and my failed efforts to properly deal with that. There was no mention there of his colleagues in the workplace, in particular those women who complained. He said he was confronting his mental health and would come through this with the support of others. And Martin Deblin wound up like this. Please, I ask you to respect the fact that I'm not going to talk about it on air anymore and I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to take any any calls on it or anything like that. This is a sports show. That's what we do. We're into sport and let's kick it. Let's do it. Well, DRS has had some stuff-ups, but that one there just defies all logic. And after that, it was on with the sport. Everyone else in the show also respected his wish not to talk about what had been reported the day before. However... It wasn't the only time this week that misconduct and harassment at New Zealand media companies was in the news. It's an industry often perceived as fun and glamorous. Welcome back. It's five past the hour. And but that's been far from the reality for some MediaWorks radio staff. This woman, who we'll call Sarah, had been working her dream job, doing well and impressing her colleagues. Then she says a new manager flipped her life upside down. TVNZ's Kristen Hall on TVNZ One News on Wednesday reported further claims of bullying at MediaWorks after previous ones had sparked a review of the company's culture by QC Maria Dew that's underway now. It's not just former workers who have concerns about the culture at MediaWorks. I've spoken to a current staffer who says bullying has been actively enabled by some of the most powerful people in the organisation. But the review will only cover conduct at the company over a period of three years from March 2018. On Media Watch last month, Hayden Donnell asked MediaWorks CEO Cam Wallace why. Oh, look, we've made a decision to make it three years because that was the recommendation. If you make it five years, there'll be someone who has has an incident six years ago. If we make it six years, presumably there'll be someone seven years ago. Look, Maria's been pretty open, so if people are wanting to go to her with um, suggestions, commentary, she'll be open to that anyway. The reality is we're actually leaning into this process of culture uh, we're spending a lot of money on the review. We're serious about it. We're not shying away from it. One of the cases in Kristen Hall's TVNZ report fell just outside that three-year period, but MediaWorks told Kristen Hall this. It says the reviewer may admit participants outside the three-year period when warranted and that the company acknowledges concerns and wants staff to bring these to the review before it's due at the end of July. 
In his earlier interview with MediaWatch, MediaWorks boss Cam Wallace told Hayden Donnell this. Any organisation, I suspect you would find some pockets of behaviour which is not consistent with the values of the organisation. Not ARNZ, no. definitely not ARNZ. I oh, know, ARNZ in every single organisation. RNZ is indeed not exempt. A staff member left RNZ last September after allegations of sexual harassment and other allegations were under investigation about other members of staff. In his long statement of contrition, apology and explanation on Friday, Martin Devlin thanked his own sons for their support, but also for calling out his behaviour. Dad, sort your shit out, was hard to hear, but the truth I needed to be told, Martin Devlin said. But women in our media have been urging employers to sort it out for years, and employers with a less-than-zero-tolerance approach are finding out they won't put up with that conduct which drives some of them out of their jobs, while those who do it get to keep theirs. They're reporting it, and journalists are reporting on it, even, as we heard earlier, when it's their own organisations involved. Tonight on News Hub, it's been a tinderbox in Parliament. The race relations row reaching fever pitch. We reveal how it's played with you, the public, in our latest News Hub Read Research poll. And for one side, it is about as bad as it gets. That was News Hub's political editor Tova O'Brien last Sunday, urging viewers to tune in at 6 o'clock for its latest political opinion poll. It was also no surprise to see News Hub again amplifying the significance of the results of the Reed Research poll that they paid for. As they do at every poll, they put huge weight on the results of the preferred Prime Minister question. Tova O'Brien even addressed Judith Collins personally with the results on News Hub at 6 last weekend. Judith Collins, on these numbers, I'm sorry, but it's time to go. 5.6%, a 12.8 percentage point plummet. On 6.7%, John Key is now more popular than you and he's not even a politician anymore. Well, Judith Collins' personal popularity had indeed slumped when compared to the previous Reed Research poll, which was taken last October. But another trend wasn't mentioned on News Hub at 6. The actual Prime Minister was the preferred Prime Minister of 48% of Reed Research's sample. The vast bulk of the remainder, almost 40%, said either, I don't know, or don't ask me. But the next night, Monday, Tova O'Brien was back on the opposition leader's case on News Hub at 6. Looking where it counts, national voters, and there's a sign of apathy within the party. Most, 33.3%, don't know or don't care who's leader. But could that big don't-care response be a sign not of party apathy prompted by Judith Collins, but that they really don't care about the leadership right now, and not nearly as much as the political reporters seem to? News Hub's preferred Prime Minister findings also led RNZ's morning report on Monday. And on Wednesday, it was all that presenter Susie Ferguson wanted to talk about with Judith Collins. This News Hub Read Research poll, do you think it's a rogue one? Uh, no, I just think it's uh, the first one that they've done since the election. And nobody's particularly focused other than you and me and a few others on politics. But while Judith Collins is having to talk about almost nothing else but the level of support for her leadership right now... There's no such drama for the Prime Minister. This week, there were more positive headlines about her leadership, including a story in The Herald, which began like this. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has topped Fortune magazine's list of the world's greatest leaders, beating out a number of influential people, including Dolly Parton. The publication cited her leadership through COVID-19 as the catalyst for her top ranking. And that's Jacinda Ardern that Fortune was referring to there, not Dolly Parton. 
But how much Fortune really knows about what's not gone well for the Prime Minister in her government this past year, or whether she'd really achieved more than the developers of the messenger RNA delivery system that makes COVID-19 vaccines effective, it's impossible to say. However, in spite of a survey recording declining trust in the news media these days, new research based on thousands of media reports in the last year shows that what the media say about our leaders and their leadership still seems to be critical to their popularity and their perceived trustworthiness and effectiveness. Media monitoring firm Icentia has been studying aspects of leadership in contemporary politics and commerce since 2018 in order to get a fix on changing styles and expectations of leaders. A pre-COVID part of Icentia's research concluded that leaders who are out there more in the media reap the rewards when the news for them and their enterprises is bad. And Icentia also concluded that failures of leadership are featured so commonly in media coverage that they heavily influence the trust that the public have in organisations, governments and communities. Now that's something Judith Collins could relate to at the moment, but there are also findings in the research for the media to ponder. Icentia's Head of Insights is Nairi Crawford. For the communications industry, one of the things that is their biggest struggle is to have leaders communicate well, having communicators be able to influence leadership in the way that they want. Uh, The finding here, twice as likely that Australian media would report on leadership positively rather than negatively, but for New Zealand, the reverse, 2.5 times as many negative mentions of leadership as there were positive. That's a huge difference. What accounts for that? The Australian media environment, it is very different, it's much larger, has a a clearer political split. So when you have um, a Prime Minister that's largely supported by by most media in that environment, that that really helps. Also a lot of their uh, leadership discussions are linked to sport uh, and their federal COVID response as well. New Zealand media are less likely to overtly praise leadership, are more likely to publish comparative uh, studies of either where our leadership has been praised overseas or just where leadership is not working overseas. So it becomes that interesting comparison that's not quite as direct. Well, right now, if you look at articles about leadership in New Zealand media, a lot of it is about the leader of the National Party. Does that partly explain this difference? Because le- the leaders and their political strategy and their popularity seems to be just occupy so much of political reporting. It does, and we were obviously going through um, a, a general election at the time that we were looking at this as well. So it, it does definitely influence it, and particularly when opposition particularly is going up against probably one of the most popular political leaders we've had in a significant amount of time. It's the leadership discussion that becomes more important. It's less about specific policy points or anything like that. It's about how are you going to combat that popularity. Well, what did you find when you looked at Dr Ashley Bloomfield who, as we know, uh, the public warmed to, mm. and he uh, became a trusted figure. In Australia, Victoria's Premier Dan Andrews, he got an awful lot of sometimes hostile mm-hmm. coverage from the media because in Victoria was the state which um, where things didn't go as well as it did in, in others. So what do you find by comparing the media coverage of their styles of, of leadership? For Dan Andrews, there were very questionable decisions and struggles with their COVID response But when you read media narratives about him, it's the idea that he's incompetent, but he's also the opposition party to the federal government, the current sitting federal government. And the cultural response to Dr Bloomfield, like the fact that you could buy a T-shirt with his face on it and you can buy a Dr Bloomfield tea towel, um, and that someone has him tattooed on them, I think is really 
It's but, just an interesting trajectory. Is it, though? I mean, isn't there really a few people who are reacting in that way? And some of that response has almost mm. struck me at the time as being a bit juvenile. Was that really um, the public responding to the leadership? Yeah, the, the cultural response was also reflective of the, the time that everybody was in where we were all doing things differently and had a, probably a lot more time on our hands. But I think when you look at when, how people responded when, when he was blamed for something that wasn't necessarily his fault and how protective people became of him as an authentic and kind of authoritative figure and they, you know, people were upset when he wasn't there and the stand-up had someone else in it or when David Clark tried to throw him under the bus and there was just this kind of emotional connection to him that would probably not exist in any other circumstance. Is that partly a function, sorry to interrupt you, of not being a political figure, that he was thought to be that somehow this poor guy is trying to serve the public? Here he is caught in the middle of politics. Potentially, but there's also something in the way that people considered and positioned him to be very, very humble. And that's always something that particularly New Zealand audiences will connect with as well. So if you're looking at a guy that in your mind is trying to do the right thing, trying to be honest. Those are the things that when you ask people about what they value in a leader, that's what they tell you they want. This is pretty galling for journalists. So, for example, just to pick one, Michael Mora of NewsHub, digging mm. quite hard into um, failures and where official statements hadn't quite matched up mm. with the performance as presented in those press conferences, which we'll talk about in a minute, mm. to report uh, critically on the performance of him and, and the effort he led um, that then cops this public backlash, like, don't say mean things about a person we like, uh, when in fact yeah. they were exposing some pretty important stuff. Communicators operating in a crisis mode past a point when they necessarily need to, and what is good communication in a crisis can very quickly turn into quite restricted communication in non-crisis mode. So there's a definite issue with how public responded to press conferences and journalists and the idea of a journalist and that they were, you know, they were asking dumb questions, which is a complete misunderstanding of what the role of a journalist is in those, in those settings. And when you kind of combine that with narratives around distrust of media and misinformation and all of those things, it makes it quite, quite a complex area. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but on this, like, I'm wondering whether partly this is kind of almost the blueprint. Sorry, this sounds very cynical, but <laughs> if if I present myself like Dr. Broomfield and make the public love me, I can get away with all sorts of average or mediocre performances. Mm. And if I've got a wellspring of public support by just presenting myself in the right way <clears throat> and appearing to demonstrate the kind of leadership people warm to, then I might get away with a pretty average performance either by me or the people I lead. You will for a while, but you can see how analytical and potentially a bit more savvy audiences are now and how quick they are to call out behaviour they don't like, how quick they are to cancel something they don't like, the risk there of being found out is very, very high. Mm. So this is not a blueprint for... No, I would not not recommend it as a blueprint, To try and PR their way out of um, not being very good at their jobs. Okay, fine. Um, Now, the press conferences, Mm. as you mentioned, to quote from the report here, uh, daily press conferences during the COVID crisis became a a warm blanket and appointment viewing during lockdowns. Mm. Um, This prolonged experience of press conferences, still quoting from the report, has the potential to change habits and expectations around communications of official information. Part of the problem is that the journalists, if you talk to them, regarded those as they talked about government by press conference Mm. or leadership Mm -hmm. by press conference and that it was a means of control over them Mm. and their inquiries. That's the big reason why we talked to journalists in response to this work as well because we were really interested in what the other side of that has been like. If this is now a habitual form of communication... 
because we do know that when you're trying to, as a journalist, when you are trying to get an answer or you're trying to get information quickly, you are more than likely now going to be referred to either a timed media release or a presser. And the biggest tension that sort of always exists between communicators, particularly, and journalists is access. And this is really another way to restrict access. From a communication standpoint, it's very smart and best practice. It allows you to have strong control of your message. It allows you to you know, answer questions in the way that you want to answer them in the format that you want. Are they still, um, you know, months months on from uh, those regular daily press conferences, are they still a bit bitter or upset about somehow ending up as the villain of the piece in the eyes of some members of the public at least? Uh, from the, the interviewing that we did, there's certainly still a high level of frustration. One of the journalists that we talked to labelled this government as the most anti-media government that they could remember because they, there is such a high level of control of the communications that you just can't access anyone. But the issue that you've also highlighted is public trust mm. in the media. So the media are a default source of information in times of crisis, but a significant potential that this information is viewed through a sceptical lens, you mm. say. So you think that's a real issue here in New Zealand where the, the, there's already a kind of starting point, a base level of like, ah, the media will, but people don't think they're going to be either honest or get things right? The, the global cultural narrative about media far surpasses anything. Mm. So if you ask people now about whether or not they trust media, they're naturally going to be inclined to say no because they believe that they shouldn't. Mm. That doesn't mean that their behaviour matches up with that opinion. And you can see that in the increased consumption of news and the use of news outlets as a default source during well, when, the time of crisis. One conclusion reached here, there is a clear demand for leaders and organisations to take a social or political stance that they may not have taken uh, previously, mm. uh, along with uh, a vehement desire to uh, hold to account those who are perceived not to be living up to a required moral standard. We can see a strong desire for ethical behaviour. Is this what we're seeing here? Is that, is that a pattern mm. we can expect more of? Especially overseas where there has been stronger social movements and, so, and response to, to those movements online, there is a really clear desire for people to have a view and a stance and behave in a certain way. So Some, big corporations yeah. endorsing Black Lives Matter, for mm -hmm. instance, as an example. Okay. Yeah, especially for corporate structures and leaders that are very risk-averse, that's Absence is, is kind of the, the comfy place to be, but that's not what audiences and you know your potential consumers and all of that type of thing, that's not what they want anymore. But how do you know that? How do you know, say the majority of Vodafone's customers say, look, I honestly don't care if you're trying to uphold uh, the principles of te 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 waitangi in your yeah. workplace and you have an inclusive policy and you won't engage with um, uh, Magic Talk Station if it does racism on its talkback. You know, we don't care about any of that. Just sell me a phone and a good broadband plan cheaper than... The competitors. Younger demographics and how people make choices and ethical consumption, those are things that if you're trying to secure your future customers and you're trying to create a longer-term view, then those are things you need to consider. And right now, um, as we mentioned earlier, Judith Collins, her leadership, mm. uh, this isn't a new thing. We've seen opposition leaders in particular become the focus of relentless um, stories about their leadership, which in your surveys, I guess, would come across as the ones that would be marked as you know, negative mm. perceptions mm. Of, of leadership. Does it strike you as a survey that this is getting even more intense? If you're Judith Collins and trying to be a leader, is there any way out of this? Because right now she can't talk about anything else than 
her support for her own leadership because that's all the media are focused on. Yeah, and the, the leadership narrative is especially intense now for the current government be, because our Prime Minister is held up to be, I mean, internationally a very well-regarded leader. And it's the idea of what's the, what's the best approach here? Is it to be the opposite of that? Is it to try and mimic the same behaviours but just with a different point of view? I think... And earlier this week, Stuff's political correspondent Thomas Coughlin wrote an article saying, actually, National as an opposition is getting its act together. And he mm. pointed to various MPs who've been examining things like the vaccine rollout and the flaws in that, which is mm. the role of an opposition, other areas like um, immigration. And he said, look, all of this is being lost mm-hmm. in, the, in the noise about Judith Collins and her leadership and the popularity of the party. No, and it, it's so much of it is about time and building trust and proving being able to, to anchor to those things that you know that you've done effectively. The issue that always happens there is that, well, it's 5%, so maybe we should consider changing it. And it's like, well, that's the worst thing to do because the public can't keep connecting to new people every six months. Um, it says in the report here, the changes brought about by the pandemic showcase leadership on a scale that's largely unprecedented. And you say here, potentially creating a view of leadership that will endure past the crisis and permanently shift expectations. Mm. What is this permanently shifted expectation that we now have uh, post-COVID of leaders, be they in business or in politics? Well, I think there's previously been this assumption that female leaders and leaders that were considered to be more empathetic weren't going to be the ones that were effective in crisis. So what it has done is sort of endorsed that that style of leadership that we could see public responding to more is a very viable form of global effective leadership. That's been something that I wouldn't have necessarily expected before. I expected that this type of leadership shift would take much longer, uh, and I think that this has really sped it up, helped to change people's opinion about things that are important here and, and all of that type of thing. That's Nairi Crawford, the head of insights at the media monitoring company Icentia, which has analysed thousands and thousands of media reports since 2018 as part of a study into leadership in both government and business and the role media coverage plays in success or failure and perceptions of success and failure. In this week's Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, we talked about that epic US broadcasting deal that involves the owners of News Hub and TV Channel 3 here, Discovery, and we also discussed a local newspaper's front-page foul-up and a pretty brutal book review that caused some blowback for the author. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or our podcast feed if you missed it. But we also talked about the extraordinary and alarming targeting in Gaza City last weekend of the building housing the headquarters of the global news agency Associated Press and the global TV news channel Al Jazeera and others. Now, no one was killed in that attack because the Israeli authorities, who claimed the building was a target because Hamas were also using it, gave one hour's warning to evacuate. And that meant the evacuation was seen live on TV, as well as the tower's total destruction later. That building is where Al Jazeera's offices are. There we are, another strike on that tower. And the tower has come down. That is the Al Jala Tower. That tower is where Al Jazeera's offices are warehoused. 
After that, the Committee to Protect Journalists demanded from the Israeli government a detailed and documented justification for this military attack. It would be illegal for the Israeli Defence Force to use military means to prevent journalists doing their work, the executive director Joel Simon said. Amnesty International said the Israeli attack must be investigated as a war crime and the Foreign Press Association called on Israel to open the Gaza crossing to allow the media in to support AP and Al Jazeera. The Palestinian Centre for Development and Media Freedom said it had recorded 50 violations against media freedoms recently, from injuries to journalists while they were covering the events in Gaza to the bombing and destruction of media institutions. But has New Zealand had anything to say about all this? Well, New Zealand's Media Freedom Committee is not very active, so don't hold your breath. But while Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta has expressed concern about events in Gaza in a statement, she said nothing about the targeting of the media. However, just two months ago, New Zealand joined a partnership of countries that was fired up by the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office to uphold media freedom where it is under threat around the world. New Zealand is one of 47 countries in this Media Freedom Coalition, and they all signed a global pledge which, among other things, opposes governments that target individual journalists or media outlets. Now, the coalition issued a strong statement about attacks on the media in Myanmar recently, but has had nothing to say about the destruction of the Al Jalal Tower last weekend so far. Now, if that's because the UK and the other countries have had to tiptoe around Israel diplomatically, it does raise the question... What's the point of a multinational alliance backed by nation-states to defend the media if they can't or won't for diplomatic reasons? Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.